President Biden visits Buffalo to console victims and families of Saturday's mass shooting at a supermarket, and he calls on Congress to pass stricter gun laws. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, May 17th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the first COVID booster for children ages 5 to 11. Until now, only adults and children ages 12 and older were eligible for a booster. Some Republican politicians and conservative media figures claim shadowy elites want to replace white Americans with immigrants and people of color. This policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. More on the racist conspiracy theory and the prominent people who embrace it coming up. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Joe Biden says white supremacy and those who profit from it must be rejected. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports from Buffalo, where the president met with the families of those who died in a mass shooting at a top supermarket on Saturday. Speaking blocks away from the scene of one of the country's worst racist massacres, Biden called for a return of the 1990s assault weapons ban and for an end to racist theories in politics. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison (laughs) running through, it really is. Running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. Cornelius Boinkin lives nearby. He says he's not sure what Biden can really do. At least it gave us something. I just want to hear him say that we're not going to tolerate this um, senseless act anymore. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Buffalo. Police say the gunman, a self-described white supremacist, targeted black people. Ten people died. Three were injured. Most of the victims are black. First-degree murder and attempted murder charges are now filed against the suspect in another mass shooting that took place a day after the Buffalo attack. In California, Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer announced today the charges against David Cho. Today we formally filed 10 counts uh, against the defendant, uh, Chow. The first count is murder in the first degree against Dr. John C., Cho also faces attempted murder charges for the five people wounded in the attack at a Taiwanese-American church luncheon in Laguna Woods Sunday. Authorities say Cho, a Chinese-American, harbored anti-Taiwan sentiment. Tensions between China and Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its own territory, are the highest in decades. The federal government has paid more than $2 billion toward funeral costs for people whose deaths have been attributed to COVID-19. Blake Farmer with member station WPLN in Nashville reports only about half of surviving families have started an application. The benefit is up to $9,000 per death. Families have to upload funeral home and cemetery receipts, along with a death certificate that has to say COVID. FEMA spokesperson Jacqueline Rothenberg says the process is meant to make sure the money goes to the right people, but she says there's much more money to be claimed. It's not just as if you submit an application and it, you know, it goes into a black hole. We actually have people you can talk to on the phone who can work with you and and look at your case and review it and to make sure that you've submitted everything. So far, states clustered in the South have the highest rate of survivors applying for funeral benefits, while the Northwest has the lowest rate. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. More than a million people have died from COVID here. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gas prices in Massachusetts continue to climb. The average cost of regular gas is now $4.66 a gallon. That's up six cents from just yesterday and 23 cents over the past week. AAA Northeast spokesperson Mary McGuire says people should shop around before they fill their tank. Yesterday, for example, within a mile and a half, I saw a price differential among gas retailers of almost 40 cents a gallon. The cost of diesel continues to rise as well. It's up two cents from yesterday to $6.40 a gallon. Governor Charlie Baker said today that he thinks lawmakers should consider suspending the state's gasoline tax. The Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance is calling on the House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka to support that move. A Boston man killed by a red line train last month ran alongside the train with his arm caught in the door before he was killed. That's according to an MBTA police report obtained by the Boston Globe. 39-year-old Robinson Lallan was killed at Broadway Station after he tried to exit the car. A preliminary report of the incident indicates the train stopped for a short time in the tunnel near the station before it continued on. It was later stopped and taken out of service after officials determined it had been involved in the lethal accident. Federal investigators found the train car malfunctioned, allowing the train to move even though the door was obstructed. Governor Baker has canceled all his public plans for the day. A spokesman for the administration says he isn't feeling well, but adds it's not COVID. WBR Steve Brown says the governor originally had a busy day on tap. Well, when they put out his schedule last night, it showed he was to attend a ribbon cutting for a building on Northern Avenue, as well as the annual meeting of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce over at the Convention Center in the Seaport. This morning, those events were removed from his schedule. Spokesman said he's not feeling well and will be attending meetings virtually. And they added that he has tested negative for COVID-19. Baker has been vaccinated and boosted twice. The region has seen an uptick in COVID cases. In the forecast, 70 degrees right now. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around 52. Tomorrow should make it to 72 tops. Lots of sunshine, dry and breezy. Could have some showers early Thursday. Clouds pretty much all day long Thursday. Highs just about 62. Again, 70 degrees in the Boston area at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash green. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. In Buffalo, New York today, a community continues to mourn. It's been three days since an 18-year-old self-proclaimed white supremacist is alleged to have shot and killed 10 black people at a grocery store and injured three other people, a racist attack that's left the nation reeling. President Biden and the First Lady arrived in Buffalo today to console families of the victims. Jill and I bring you this message from deep in our nation's soul. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail, and white supremacy will not have the last word. We're joined now by NPR's Adrian Florido, who is in Buffalo. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Emily. Tell us more about President Biden's visit. Well, his first stop was the grocery store where this massacre happened. Uh, He and First Lady Jill Biden laid a bouquet of white flowers and then spent some time there in silence. Later, at a community center, the president met privately with families of the victims before delivering a public speech. Uh, He held back tears. He told the families he hoped that from their pain, the nation would find purpose. And what else did he say? 
Well, he spoke at length about the ideology of white supremacy that fueled the alleged gunman and and the so-called replacement theory that this gunman apparently subscribed to, a theory that elites want to replace and disempower white people by replacing them with non-whites. Biden called these views a lie, a poison festering in the U.S. and becoming more mainstream with the help of right-wing politicians and media. I and all of you reject the lie. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. Those views are domestic terrorism, evident here in Buffalo and in cities like Charleston, El Paso, and others where white nationalists have carried out mass killings in recent years. In the days since this shooting, there has been a lot of talk among advocates about the need for gun reform. Did the president address that? He said very little. Uh, he, he made a passing mention in his speech about the importance of keeping military-style assault weapons off of American streets, but he stopped short of committing to fight for that. It seemed uh, to be a, a tacit recognition that despite the persistence of these kinds of mass killings, gun control proposals are, are basically non-starters in Congress. And how are Buffalo residents reacting to the president's visit today? Well, reaction's been mixed. Uh, a crowd gathered outside the community center where the president spoke, and some people said they appreciated his visit. Uh, but Tanika Simmons, a local activist, said that the president needed to say more about his plans to combat hate. What I need to know is what is my government going to do about these active groups? Like how many of these hate groups have to kill people before they are knocking down their doors and throwing them in jail? And as this community mourns, there is a case against the alleged killer that's moving forward. Where does that stand? Well, the suspect is still in custody here in Buffalo on a single count of first-degree murder to which he's pleaded not guilty. He'll be in court again on Thursday with uh, more charges expected. Uh, investigators are poring over several racist screeds he apparently posted online, his online and social media posts. They're trying to piece together how he planned this attack in recent days and months. Uh, federal prosecutors are also investigating, and they are likely to file a federal hate crimes charges, too. And Pierre's Adrian Florido in Buffalo, New York. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. To Idaho now, where Republican Governor Brad Little is facing a primary challenge today. Janice McGeehan is the state's lieutenant governor. She is one of several Republicans in Idaho primaries with ties to extremist militia groups. She recently spoke at a white nationalist conference, and she has the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. NPR's Kirk Siegler is based in Boise, the capital. He joins us now. Hey there, Kirk. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, set the stage a little more. Why is this primary getting so much attention? Well, Republicans hold a super majority here at this Capitol where I'm standing, especially since the pandemic. There has been a rise in extremism within the GOP. You know, Mary Louise, this is Idaho. There's a long history of extremism. You can think back to the Ruby Ridge standoff 30 years ago. The Aryan Nations was headquartered in the Idaho Panhandle. But lately, we're seeing extremism really enter the mainstream of Republican politics, just like we are across the country. There's a, even a faction here basically calling for armed rebellion. You know, in most other states, governors Governor Brad Little would be a hardline, hard-right Republican. He just mm. signed a Texas-style abortion ban. But as you say, Donald Trump in, endorsed Janice McGeehan. It's, it's widely thought that Little will still secure the nomination, but these are unpredictable times, as we know. Idaho is one of the fastest-growing states in the nation. It's hard to know how all the newcomers will vote. There has been a lot of uh, white flight coming from California up here lately, especially since the pandemic. Huh. I want to hear more about Janice McGeehan. How, how did she become so prominent? 
Well, let's first point out uh, that the lieutenant governor here is an independently elected office, so she's not aligned with Governor Little. Uh, McGeehan really started sparring with him during the COVID lockdowns that were very brief here in Idaho. Uh, one time when he left the state and she was acting governor, she even signed an executive order banning all mask mandates in cities and schools. You may recall she also tried to call the National Guard down to the U.S.-Mexico border. This is Idaho. We're bordering Canada. Yeah. And when Governor Little returned home, he rescinded all the things she did and suggested it was tyrannical. Well, and is it working with voters? Any, can we measure whether it's helping her in this race? We don't really have a great idea, and that's why we're watching this primary so closely. We do know that Trump easily carried Idaho with one of his big, biggest wins in the nation, about 64% of the vote here. When you drive into the suburbs and the rural areas, you see Trump 2024 signs everywhere, and McGeehan is definitely going for his playbook. You know, she defended her appearance at the white nationalist America First PAC conference back in March, and she also doubled down after this promotional video went viral recently. We're going to hear from it now where it looks as though she seems to be promoting violence. God calls us to pick up the sword and fight, and Christ will reign in the state of Idaho. So Mary Louise, I'd say the Idaho primary uh, is definitely going to be a national test for how far to the right the GOP can be pulled. You know, just the other day, the far-right extremist Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers was here on McGeehan's behalf. Rogers has been peddling a fake conspiracy that the U.S. government orchestrated the Buffalo mass shooting over the weekend. And just real quick, just to keep things interesting, Eamon Bundy is also in the race. That's right, although he recently switched his affiliation from Republican to Independent, so he's not in the primary, but he, he called the Republican Party corrupt and wicked, and you may recall he was wheeled out of this building here, the Idaho Capitol, in handcuffs after trespassing charges during the pandemic. All right, lots to keep you busy there in Boise and Pierre Kirk Sigler. Thank you. You're welcome. The Food and Drug Administration authorized the first COVID-19 vaccine booster for young children today. So kids ages 5 to 11 can now get a third shot. NPR's health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey, Emily. What did the FDA authorize exactly? The FDA okayed a request from Pfizer and BioNTech for a third dose of their lower-dose pediatric vaccine for all kids ages 5 to 11 who got their second shots at least five months ago. Until now, only kids ages 12 and older and adults could get a booster. And why now? What's the rationale? Well, the idea is that the protection these kids got from two shots has faded over time, just like it has for older kids and, and adults, especially against the Omicron variant. And the companies and the FDA say a small study indicates a third shot can safely boost antibodies back up to levels that would provide stronger protection, especially against Omicron. I talked about this with Dr. Yvonne Mo Boldonado at Stanford University. She helped set policy for the American Academy of Pediatrics. She notes that it's been more than five months since most of these kids got vaccinated. So this is a really good time to really start thinking about getting those five to 11 year olds their boosters. It does really make a difference for families who want to go traveling, who want to be out and about, um, and who want to protect their kids against potential complications of COVID disease. And that's especially important now that an even more contagious subvariant of Omicron is helping fuel yet another surge, and most people have stopped wearing their masks and taking other precautions. And do all medical experts think this third shot is needed? 
You know, Emily, it's mixed. Some do, but some say the most important thing is to get kids who haven't gotten any shots yet to get vaccinated, and that two shots are still doing the most important thing, protecting kids from getting really sick or dying. Here's Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who helps advise the FDA. I think we have to define what are the goals of a COVID vaccine. If the goals of a COVID vaccine are protection against serious illness, the evidence to date is that two doses of a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-old is protective against serious illness. And any added protection from a third shot probably won't last all that long. And, you know, Offit thinks it was a mistake for the FDA to skip letting his committee debate the pros and cons in a public forum, especially since most parents still haven't gotten their kids this age their first two shots. That makes me wonder, how much demand do you think there will be for a booster for these kids? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, some parents will probably rush out to get their kids ages 5 to 11 a third shot, but most probably won't. You know, that's, you know, less than a third of parents of kids ages 5 to 11 have gotten their kids the first two shots, and only about a quarter of those ages 12 to 17 have gotten boosters. So, you know, we'll have to see what happens. On Thursday, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention will consider whether to recommend parents boost all kids ages 5 to 11 or just make the booster an option for those who want or need it. So we're talking about kids between the ages of 5 to 11. What about kids younger than 5 who haven't been able to get any shots? Where does that, where does that stand? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And many parents of uh, those littlest kids are really angry and frustrated that they haven't been able to get their, you know, little ones vaccinated. They feel left behind, like everybody's moving on and leaving them behind unprotected. And the FDA is planning to finally take that up next month. And the hope is a vaccine for babies and toddlers could finally be available by maybe late June or July. And PR's Rob Stein, thank you. You bet. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking business news, Wall Street rallied today. The Dow pulled in 431 points, or one and a third percent, to close at 32,655. S&P rose 2 percent to close at 4089. The Nasdaq grew by 2 and 3 quarters percent to end the day at 11,985. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 630. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12 apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. Join WBUR Tuesday, June 2nd for the Moth Main Stage, featuring five luminaries who tell stories based on the theme Past Tense, Future Perfect. Get your tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The forecast is coming up next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. 
Changeable weather depending on where you are today. Showers in some areas, sunshine in others. Tonight should average partly cloudy, windy, down around 52 degrees. Tomorrow should make it to 72 tops, lots of sunshine, dry and breezy. Then for Thursday, could bring back some showers, mostly in the morning. Overcast during the day, high is only around 62. Should be sunny and warmer on Friday. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. In early March, a couple weeks after the war in Ukraine began, I met a woman named Daria Bietschasna. She had just become a refugee in Poland. And she told me that once she left Ukraine, she came back to the small rural border crossing of Krzyzczenko, where we met. She wanted to help others fleeing the war. We do what we can because uh, when we crossed the border, we were shocked and uh, don't understand what to do. A lot of people don't know, no Polish, no English. Uh, in our way, we can help them. Bietschasna is a high school economics teacher. And on that frigid day in the mountains, she told me she planned to continue teaching her students online. Well, two months later, she's kept her promise. Teaching economics to her pupils, who are now spread out all over the world. In Australia, in Britain, in the USA, a lot of in Poland, Germany, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Georgia, Turkey. And the teacher is in Brittany, France, living in a coastal village by the sea. It takes me... Uh, three minutes to get to the ocean. She's with her aunt and cousins, who are 11 and 16. They study before French language, uh, and it's like opportunity for them uh, to study, to improve their French, and uh, to see another country, because they never go, went anywhere from Dnipro, and it's their first time to be abroad. That's why we have a, 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 a so long travel by train from uh, Poland to uh, this uh, place. You're describing this like a great opportunity to visit a new country and uh, learn a new language. This is not the way people often talk about fleeing a war. All what we uh, get from life is uh, opportunities. We caught up over Zoom the other day. She was in France, I was in Poland, and Daria Bietschasna told me she has dreamed of seeing Brittany since she was a teenager. It was my dream from 16, really. I want to visit different French castles uh, from uh, Alexander Dumas' story. Yeah. And uh, now it's realized. As for me, it's terrible and beautiful at once. 
What was it like to see those French castles for the first time that you dreamed of since you were 16? Uh, now I can realize that they're beautiful, that French people take care about them. But uh, when I saw them, I understand that I miss Ukraine. In Ukraine, we have in Lviv, in uh, Kiev, a lot of beautiful castles. They are not better than French, as in my dreams. Huh. So it made you appreciate your home even more. Yes. Wow. You know, when I met you in Khrushchenko, I asked where you were going to go. And you answered the question, I hope to go home as soon as I can. And my, uh, now my answer will be the same. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I can. But uh, I really can't uh, be in country uh, in uh, dangerous. And uh, uh, now I also with my little cousins and uh, also um, to be nervous and uh, I'm uh, scared uh, each day and each moment in uh, my city. Because yeah. when I read news on my phone, I really become uh, hysteric. And that's would... Dnipro, right? Yes, it's Dnipro, but uh, uh, in Dnipro and our region are surrounded by uh, Kherson, uh, uh, Zaporizhia, uh, Donetsk, Kharkiv, yeah. all these regions are dangerous. Is it difficult for you to enjoy the beauty of this place you've always dreamed of going while you know that these terrible things are also happening back in your home? I work a lot with psychology uh, to understand uh, what beautiful uh, place and people and uh, use around me and that I have a lot of opportunities because uh, before that I was uh, almost upset and, and when I upset uh, I can't help my sisters and can't help myself. I can't help my parents and granny in Hebrew or help my friends. That's why I walk uh, by myself to get a uh, normal emotions and normal life and be useful uh, for my country. Yeah. So your parents and your granny are still in Dnipro? Yes. yes. Are they safe? How are they doing? Uh, anybody in Ukraine, they are insane. Uh, but uh, they are adult people. It's their decision. And uh, my granny is too old to have a long travel. And now is the season of summer house and she wants to plant it. And my cousins help her and uh, it uh, gives her uh, a little emotion and uh, to understand that she's also useful and uh, she can do what she likes. So she's planting a garden? She's planting vegetables? Not a lot of, but some tomatoes, some carrot, uh, some potato, please. Tell me about your students. You're still teaching them yes. remotely online? Yes. How are classes? How is that going in the middle of a war? I have a lot of work now uh, because in Ukraine, uh, make the school year shorter. That's why I have a lot of... Uh, job of tests or for 
taking uh, tasks. And are they able to focus or are they distracted because a war is happening? Now every student and uh, I hope each teacher understand that they should study and be better because we all should rebuild our Ukraine. And uh, in another way, it's uh, time not to be uh, concentrated on the uh, only on war, destroy, and anything, something as this. They have uh, some task what they should to do to be better, to be better for themselves, for their country, and for their parents. And uh, it's uh, for me, it's a big motivation for me to get up in the morning and uh, doing my job uh, good as, as well as I can and more. Yeah. Daria, I'm so glad to talk to you again and so glad that you're doing well and happy and getting to see French castles. And I hope you get to go home soon. Merci. Ukrainian economics teacher and refugee Daria Bietschasna speaking with me from a village in Brittany, France. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, New Hampshire is the only New England state that has not protected abortion rights. The issue will be center stage as abortion rights supporter Maggie Hassan tries to hold her seat in the U.S. Senate. Anthony Brooks' report is coming up on WBUR. Tonight, the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat will play game one of the Eastern Conference Finals. Celtics defeated the Milwaukee Bucks to get here. The Heat beat the Philadelphia 76ers. First two games of the best-of-seven conference final will be played in Miami. Boston's first home game will be Saturday. And Red Sox host the best team in the AL West tonight at Fenway for their second game of the series with Houston. Nathan Navaldi pitches against the Astros. 7-10 start time at Fenway. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com/mos, and Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. Journalist Putsada Rang has reported on many wars. Her own life is defined by the war her family escaped. What did I owe my mother for giving me life? On top of that, what did I owe her for saving my life when my family escaped the genocide and war in Cambodia and immigrated to America? The question gripped Rang as she decided to tell her mother that she's gay. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden and the First Lady visited Buffalo today morning with the grieving families after the mass shooting at a supermarket on Saturday. Biden angrily denounced white supremacy as a poison. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail, and white supremacy will not have the last word. Biden called the attack that left 10 people dead and three others injured terrorism. It's primary day in five states across the country, including Pennsylvania and North Carolina, where key Senate races will take place this year. And Piers Deepa Shivaram has more. 
A Senate seat in Pennsylvania is open for the first time in 12 years. Three Republican candidates, including Trump-endorsed candidate Dr. Oz, are in a tight race on the GOP side. Republican activist and Fox News commentator Kathy Barnett has had a recent surge in the race, despite having far less money. For Democrats, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is the favorite. North Carolina also has a Senate contest, and there are several congressional and governor's races, like in Idaho and Pennsylvania, that showcase the influence of Trump's endorsements. Close Democratic primaries in Oregon and North Carolina have voters choosing between moderate and progressive divides. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Turkey says it won't allow Sweden and Finland into NATO because of their alleged support for Kurdish militants. That objection caught the two applicants and other NATO members off guard, complicating what was envisioned to be a swift expansion of the alliance in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 431 points. That's up 1.3 percent. The Nasdaq up 321. That's up 2.7 percent. The S&P 500 up 80. That's up 2 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' biggest and most expensive hospital system is promising to reduce health care costs by $70 million a year. That's after the State Health Policy Commission said it has a spending problem. WBUR's Priyanka Prayal McCluskey has more. Mass General Brigham says it will lower prices for its medical services by almost $54 million a year. It plans to reduce unnecessary hospitalizations and emergency room visits and take care of more patients at home and at lower-cost community sites. The state's Health Policy Commission is reviewing the plan to determine whether it goes far enough. This is the first time the watchdog agency has ever used its power to require a hospital system to cut costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Massachusetts will continue to offer pandemic-specific food assistance for eligible households. The Baker administration today announced it has federal approval to continue to provide additional benefits. The program is for people who have children under the age of six and who already receive assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. The state says approximately 72,000 children and their families will begin to receive the additional benefits next month. A special commission is unanimously recommending a new state motto and a full redesign of the Massachusetts state seal. Activists argue the current versions are disparaging to Native Americans. Commission member Elizabeth Solomon also is a member of the Massachusetts tribe at Ponkapog. I think this is not just an issue of whether this is harmful to Indigenous people. It is also an issue of how the state is representing itself. The values that we claim to hold are not currently being reflected in the seal that we have. The current state seal depicts a Native American standing beneath a sword-wielding arm in the Latin motto, by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens, grown from seeds without pesticides. NativePlantTrust.org. Nice day today. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be windy, down around 52. Tomorrow could make it to 72 tops. Lots of sunshine, dry and breezy. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals. 
focused on providing holistic financial planning, from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning, in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The man accused of murdering 10 people in Buffalo and wounding several others intentionally targeted black people. He was obsessed with a racist belief pushed by white supremacists that shadowy elites are seeking to replace white Americans with immigrants and people of color. This is called replacement theory, and we are going to spend some time examining it and some of the people who embrace it, including prominent Republican politicians and conservative media figures, most notably Fox News star Tucker Carlson. Joining me now, two colleagues, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick and senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Welcome to you both. Hey, thanks for having thanks, us. Thanks, Mary Louise. Um, David, you start, and let's start there with Tucker Carlson, who, just to be clear, he is not mentioned in this 180-page screed that authorities say the alleged gunman posted online, right? Yeah, he's not anywhere in there. Not at all. Instead, he cites the influences of 4chan and invokes what's called the so-called great replacement theory, this idea that these amorphous um, forces are trying to replace whites. Started a century ago in France, moved around different targets in different places. So in this century, uh, why is why is Tucker Carlson part of this conversation? What's his role here? Because he's made it acceptable to talk about it. If you look at what leading white supremacists have said, a number of them really hail him for popularizing their views and particularly on this. I think there are two ways to think about Carlson being part of this. One is through the sheer volume of his coverage, and the other is the influence he has in the Trump wing of the Republican Party on and off the air. He is one of Fox's most popular shows. And if you think about him as a political force, people have even talking about him as a potential Republican presidential candidate in 2024 should Trump not run. Okay, so can we hear some of this? If we tune into Fox, what's the kind of thing we would be hearing? Well, let me give you a sample of what you'd hear uh, if you turned into his show on any regular basis. Let's start with this first clip. They're trying to change the population of the United States, and they hate it when you say that because it's true. And then there's one like this. The Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. Who are those people again? Listen to this. This policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. So that's just a small sampling. The New York Times earlier this month presented findings in which they found hundreds of instances just like this in recent years, not in passing, but in great length and more explicitly embracing it in just the last year or so. Um, Well, let me turn us to the politics of this, which brings me to you, Domenico. Uh, How influential is this? How does this filter into the politics of the right in America? I mean, David's documented pretty well how conservative media, particularly Tucker Carlson, has played a pretty big role in all of this. We have seen his influence with the base of Republican voters, certainly in that Trump base. We've seen in polling, for example, that people who watch conservative media far more likely to believe in the tenets of replacement, that an 
then that it's in fact happening in this country. Uh, almost half of Republicans believe replacement is happening, according to a recent AP NORC poll. Um, so it's taken some degree of hold. But the seeds of this go pretty far back. You know, the fights over affirmative action in the 1980s when manufacturing jobs were being outsourced in huge numbers, blue collar jobs were becoming increasingly scarce. And that led some politicians to try and exploit that for political gain. I think back to 1990, for example, and this ad run by the late North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms called White Hands. Take a listen to part of that. You needed that job and you were the best qualified, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? And you see in that a a white man in a flannel shirt crumple up a piece of paper and fast forward to the fights over immigration in this century. And that narrative really took hold on the right. Here was Donald Trump as a candidate for president three months before the 2016 presidential election backstage at the Values Voter Summit to the Christian Broadcasting Network. I think this will be the last election that the Republicans have a chance of winning because you're going to have people flowing across the borders. You're going to have illegal immigrants coming in and they're going to be legalized and they're going to be able to vote. And once that all happens, you can forget it. So he's not actually using the word replacement, not using it explicitly, but clearly talking about it. And then... And then taking that and and moving into the White House. Right. And when he was in the White House and when he campaigned again, he's been he did it in very intentional ways and continues to do it. I mean, earlier this year, Trump was at a rally and he exaggerated what was happening with a covid program in New York. He claimed that whites were being made to go, quote, to the back of the line for therapeutics. So I called up Casey Kelly, a professor at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, who has studied Trump's language. He says what Trump has tried to do to exploit white grievance is to reframe experiences of alien that many in rural America feel that pop culture doesn't reflect who they are anymore and show it as something purposeful that's being done to them. And that's happening concurrently with a burgeoning um, opioid crisis combined with the collapse of infrastructure and manufacturing and good quality union jobs in, in rural areas of the country. He enables them to view that as a systematic dispossession, that it's a by design to hurt them because it's an effort by progressives to institute their version of America. And look, the fact here is that demographic change has accelerated the ability for politicians on the right to do this. Since 1990, whites have declined from 76 percent of the population to 60 percent. And by 2045, the census estimates whites will be the minority in this country. And even if all the borders were closed right now and there was a hundred foot wall and no one was let back in until then, it would still hold true. As of 2018, whites dropped to less than half of the under 15 population in this country for the first time. And when it comes to politics and society, it's introducing a lot of volatility and deliberately pushed by many on the right to get people to the polls. Hmm. And what about media on the right? Let me bring it back to you to, to close us out, David Fulkenflick. Mm-hmm. Is there any pushback? Is there any, say at Fox News, which employs Tucker Carlson, is there any sign that they're addressing this rhetoric? None whatsoever. Fox News almost invariably, and again in this case today, doesn't comment, just points you to what Carlson has had to say on his show about this subject. In his case last night, Tucker Carlson called the shooting horrific, said the accused shooter was racist and also mentally ill. But he's turning the tables, essentially using this to lay into President Biden and Democrats for playing what he says are racial politics. The parent company, Fox Corporation under Lachlan Murdoch, says this is just all part of an open, lively debate and discussion, won't really engage on it now. But in reality, Fox News has 
stripped away restraint and you aren't seeing repercussions for Carlson. And what that means is you're seeing other opinion hosts uh, dip into these waters and some news anchors essentially allow guests to propagate the same racial replacement racist theories without any pushback or contradiction. And in doing that, they're simply following Carlson, who is clearly the leader of the pack at Fox. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik and NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks to you both. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. The U.S. has now surpassed one million COVID deaths. A new study puts a number on how many of those deaths were preventable if more people had gotten vaccinated. Meanwhile, one in six Americans still say they definitely won't get a COVID vaccine. The story behind a staggering statistic this afternoon on NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is NPR News. Abortion rights have shot to the top of an important U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire. The Democratic incumbent is hoping for strong turnout from her base now that a leaked draft opinion shows the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to upend Roe v. Wade. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. Top Democrats gathered at Planned Parenthood in Concord recently to sound the alarm about the draft opinion. Among them, Senator Maggie Hassan, who faces a tough re-election fight. Republicans have identified her seat as one of the keys in their effort to retake the Senate. Hassan says protecting abortion rights is now a central issue in her campaign. We cannot let politicians, whether they be in Washington or in Concord, take away a woman's freedom. Passions are running high. Just a few days ago, Republican State Representative Susan DeLemis confronted abortion rights demonstrators outside the state capitol. Although New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris Sununu, says he's pro-choice, the Republican legislature just defeated an effort to codify Roe into state law. And it imposed new restrictions, including banning most abortions after 24 weeks and requiring anyone seeking one to get an ultrasound. Senator Hassan warns that if Roe falls, abortion access could further erode in New Hampshire. I think people couldn't quite believe that it would actually happen. And now that it's here, they are outraged. Across the country, Democrats hope the abortion debate will help them retain control of Congress at a time when President Biden's popularity has sunk and inflation has soared. Senator Hassan's Republican opponents favor tougher limits on abortions. One of them is Kevin Smith, who used to lead a Christian advocacy group. Smith is avowedly anti-abortion and supports the leaked draft decision. And so I I am comfortable with the issue being returned to the states and uh, with there being reasonable restrictions put in place. Smith says Democrats like Maggie Hassan are raising the alarm about abortion to distract voters from the real issue. Which is the economy. Whether it's the prices at the pump, inflation everywhere you go, 401ks and stocks are tanking. But Senator Hassan insists that access to abortion is also a key concern. She points out that Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell wouldn't rule out pursuing a nationwide abortion ban. Elections matter. Granite staters know it. And I think this is an issue that they will vote on. 
Opponents of abortion say the prospect of overturning Roe v. Wade is energizing them as well. Jason Hennessy, president of New Hampshire Right to Life, welcomes the draft opinion and the attention it's brought to the abortion debate. I guess it gives us a much better opportunity to get our message up. We're happy about that, and we hope more people will see the unborn as people who deserve some sort of rights. Polling suggests that New Hampshire voters care more about economic issues than hot-button social issues such as abortion. That's according to Andy Smith, who directs the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. Smith also says a solid majority of New Hampshire voters want to keep abortion legal. But he says it's just too soon to know who the issue will help the most. My view is it probably motivates Democrats more than Republicans, simply because anger is a greater motivating force than cheering your party on. What is certain is that voters will be hearing a lot about abortion as the nation braces for a likely post-Roe world. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. New data from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors show the median price for a single-family home in the state is now $590,000. That's up more than 12 percent from the same time last year. The association says home prices are affected by inflation and rising interest rates. The average 30-year fixed mortgage rates now exceeds 5 percent, its highest level since 2011. This is WBUR. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. And the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. This is WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the FDA is taking emergency steps to increase the supply of baby formula after a plant closure led to shortages. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Should still be windy down around the low 50s. Tomorrow should be a beautiful day. Comfortable 72 degrees with bright sunshine. It's 449. Terry Stone, Managing Partner of the Americas for Oliver Wyman, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR's programming is smart creative, informative, and thought-provoking. Just like our clients and employees who look to WBUR to help them understand the world. We are very proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to wbur.org sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. President Biden is lifting some of the sanctions placed on Cuba during the Trump administration. The move is intended to ease an economic crisis in Cuba. And the situation there is certainly dire right now. Record numbers of Cubans are fleeing the island where inflation is high and food is scarce. We are joined now by NPR's Carrie Kahn, who just returned from Cuba and joins us now from Mexico City. Good afternoon, Carrie. Good afternoon, Emily. 
So, Carrie, which sanctions exactly are being eased, and will this make things easier for Cubans on the island? Travel sanctions are being eased. Uh, there will be more direct flights allowed from the U.S. to Cuba. The U.S. will restart what's called Family Reunification Visa Program, and that allows for up to 20,000 visas to be issued a year. And a $1,000 cap on money sent from the U.S. to individual Cubans is also being lifted. And those so-called remittances are just a lifeline to Cubans, and now they can can get more money from relatives and friends abroad. It's tricky how that will work since the company that processes those remittances in Cuba is run by the military, and that company still remains on the U.S. sanction list. The administration says that these measures will help ease a very, very tough situation on the island, and it is very tough. Prices are just up for everything, and that is even if you can find food and medicine to buy. And so how are people finding food in Cuba? You were just there last week, so what did you see? It is a daily struggle. Everywhere you go, there are lines. And I've been to Cuba for years now, and this is the worst I've ever seen it. You just see crowds gathering everywhere. They're always under a tree or in a small little piece of shade because it's just so hot in the Caribbean right now. And you know there must be a store nearby. People line up early in the morning, sometimes before dawn, and wait hours. And then they're not even sure they're going to get something. Here, I want you to listen to this man I met. He's 51-year-old William Sinero, and he was in a line in Havana where he had already been waiting three hours when I I finally talked to him. He says every day it's a new line, another line, another line, and every day it's for something different. Today he's waiting for soap and milk. Tomorrow he'll go and maybe he'll get some cooking oil. The next day chicken. He's a construction worker, but he says he's not working because there's no cement on the island, so he has time to wait in these lines. Cuba was closed for nearly two years under very strict COVID restrictions. Uh, just shut off tourists to the island, which is a vital cash source for the country. And the economy is just shattered in Cuba, and there's a scarcity of everything. Then will these measures Biden took allow for more U.S. tourism to Cuba? Some of them will. Like I said, there will be more flights allowed by U.S. carriers. There have been very limited flights, and they're very expensive. And there's none to cities outside of Havana, so that's going to change. But Americans holding U.S. passports are still barred from traveling to Cuba. There's a few exceptions, like if you're a journalist, that's how I got in, or on an educational tour or these so-called people-to-people visits when you're going to deal directly with the Cuban people, the new measures will allow for more of those types of travel. But as I said, the COVID shutdown was devastating to the tourism industry, and many restaurants and small private hotels have shuttered. The government has this goal of attracting 2.5 million tourists this year, and that's going to be tough. And just quickly, there's a long history of U.S. sanctions against Cuba. So why is the Biden administration doing this now? That's a good question. I'm not really sure about the timing. President Biden, as a candidate, had said he would loosen these sanctions slapped on Cuba from Trump because he said they were just hurting the Cuban people. It might be in the run-up to the Summit of the Americas, which is going to take place in the beginning of June in Los Angeles, that he's trying to create some goodwill. I'm not sure. That's NPR's Carrie Kahn in Mexico City. Thank you, Carrie. We look forward to hearing more from your trip to Cuba in the coming weeks. Thank you so much. Some good news for hungry babies and their anxious parents. The Food and Drug Administration is taking emergency steps to get more baby formula on the market in the coming weeks. Baby formula has been hard to find, really hard to find in some parts of the country since suspected contamination led to a recall and the shuttering of a big manufacturing plant. That plant reportedly produced as much as one-fifth of all the infant formula in the country. So how did we get here? A question for NPR's Scott Horsley has got. 
Hi, Mary Louise. All right, so the FDA has now cleared the way for that plant to reopen. There will be new safety measures, but it's kind of mind-blowing how a single plant can have such a huge role to play in feeding the, the nation's hungry babies. It really is, and this episode has highlighted just how concentrated the baby formula industry is. Abbott Laboratories, the company behind that shuttered plant in Michigan, is one of just four companies that control about 90% of the U.S. formula market. And in some ways, the federal government has contributed to that. Hmm. How so? One example is the Agriculture Department's WIC program, which provides low-income families with baby formula and other food. The way it works is each state signs an exclusive contract with one of the formula manufacturers. So the government gets a big price break, and in exchange, the company gets a captive market. And because WIC is such a big customer, it has an outsize impact on the whole formula industry. You know, whichever company has the WIC contract in a state tends to get the most shelf space at the grocery store and the most recommendations from pediatricians. Claire Kellaway, who's with the Open Markets Institute, says that really crowds out the competition and helps the big players get even bigger. Because the WIC program is such a large purchaser, it buys about half of the formula on the market. Once a company has an exclusive deal to service a state, competitors don't have a financial incentive to compete in that state. Abbott, the company with the shuttered plant, has the mm. WIC monopoly in about two-thirds of all the states. And the administration has asked states to temporarily relax those monopoly rules so that WIC recipients can use any brand of formula they can find. Um, another piece of this is the FDA is also opening the door to importing more formula from other countries. How is that going to change things? Ordinarily, the U.S. brings in almost no formula from other countries, and that's because there are steep taxes and regulatory barriers that make it very difficult to bring formula in. Those barriers are ostensibly designed to protect the safety of infants, but they also protect the domestic suppliers. And this illustrates a larger point. You know, some people have argued the best way to bulletproof supply chains is to bring manufacturing inside the United States. But we've basically tried that here with baby formula. And as Mary Lovely of the Peterson Institute for International Economics says, you can see the results. This shows that just having one or two, you know, factories in the U.S. or suppliers in the U.S. is, is not the way to be resilient. In fact, it's a recipe for being vulnerable. Lovely says what you really want is a bunch of suppliers, so don't put all your eggs in one basket or all your baby formula in one bottle. Hmm. Uh, meanwhile, if you have a baby and you're worried, how am I going to feed this baby? This is really urgent. How soon will these moves make a difference? Not overnight. Authorities say it's going to take weeks to restart production at the Abbott plant and weeks to bring imported formula into the U.S. In the meantime, the administration is working to get existing formula where it's needed most. You know, these emergency fixes are designed to be temporary in nature, but FDA Commissioner Robert Califf says longer term, concentration in the formula industry is also worth a look. The question of whether we need more diversity in terms of the overall supply is one that I think will be much discussed. And needs to be considered in light of the levers we have to make that happen. And the government does have some important levers as both a regulator and a customer. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. NPR Scott Horsley. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at 
indeed.com slash NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. This is 90.9 WBUR. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout the greater Boston area and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. Should have partly cloudy skies eventually tonight. Breezy down around the low 50s. Tomorrow comfortable about 72 degrees. Sunshine for most of the day tomorrow. We could see some showers move in, especially for Thursday morning, then overcast skies through the day. Should be cooling off to the mid-60s, but then brighter and milder on Friday. 72 degrees in the Boston area at 459. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden goes to Buffalo to talk in the aftermath of the mass shooting there over the weekend. Coming up, New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who appeared with President Biden. She'll talk about gun violence and extremism in the state of New York. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, McDonald's pulls out of Russia. We'll hear about the economic significance of the move. A late surge by conservative commentator Kathy Barnett has turned Pennsylvania's Republican primary for U.S. Senate into a tight three-way race. I am your best chance at ever getting anyone in office who will actually fight for you. These stories and the winner of the 2022 Tiny Desk Contest, Cambridge's own Alisa Amador, coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden traveled to Buffalo today to mourn with family and friends of 10 people killed in what prosecutors say was a racially motivated hate crime. The president called the mass shooting at a grocery store domestic terrorism. And as NPR Scott Detrow tells us, he linked hate speech to the attack. Biden tied the Buffalo shooting to several other recent mass shootings where the killers said they were motivated by white supremacy. The president said he condemned, quote, those who spread the lie for power, political gain and profit. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison <laughs> running through. Our, it really is. Running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. Biden also named every single victim, talking about their lives, the reasons they went to the grocery store that day and what their families are remembering about them. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. 
A formal count now of one million dead since the start of the pandemic, according to the data kept by the Johns Hopkins University COVID-19 dashboard. NPR's Rob Stein reports. The milestone of hitting one million deaths has long been expected, but it still comes as a devastating moment. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House science advisor. It is terrible, horrible to have that many people die of a transmissible disease in a two-year period. It is very sobering and very sad and tragic. More people have now died from COVID-19 in this country than died from AIDS in the U.S. since that pandemic began decades ago. The toll is far higher than the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, an equivalent to losing the entire population of San Jose, California, the nation's 10th largest city. And hundreds are still dying every day. Rob Stein, NPR News. The number of migrants stopped at the U.S.-Mexico border climbed again in April to one of the highest marks in decades. NPR's Joel Rose has more. Immigration authorities encountered migrants at the border more than 230,000 times in April, according to statistics reported in a Justice Department filing. That's one of the highest monthly totals in the last 20 years. Nearly half of those migrants were quickly expelled, most under the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42, which sharply limits how many can seek asylum. The CDC says that's no longer needed to protect public health, and the Biden administration is preparing to lift Title 42 next week unless it's blocked by Congress or the courts. A federal judge in Louisiana is expected to rule soon in a case filed by states that are trying to keep Title 42 in place. Joel Rose, NPR News. Good news about retail sales helped lead stocks higher today. The Dow closed up 431 at 32,654. The Nasdaq gained 321. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A police report of a fatal incident on the red line last month suggests the train involved stopped for a short time after the incident but then continued on. 39-year-old Robinson Lallan was uh, dragged and killed at the Broadway T-stop after his arm became trapped in the door of one of the train cars. The Boston Globe obtained the MBTA police report. It says Lallan was later found about 75 feet inside the train tunnel. Federal investigators have said a problem with the door control system allowed the train to move even though the door was not fully shut. A federal report is still pending. Senator Ed Markey is endorsing the fair share amendment ballot measure in Massachusetts. The proposed state constitutional amendment would impose a 4% surtax on annual household income over a million dollars. Senator Markey says the amendment would ensure a better and more just future for everyone in Massachusetts. With a fair share tax on the wealthiest 1% in the state, We can address growing income inequality and rebuild from this pandemic with stronger schools and improve roads, bridges and public transit. The so-called millionaire's tax is expected to add more than a billion dollars in revenue for the state. Massachusetts voters will vote on the measure in November. A new UMass Amherst poll shows President Biden's approval rating is down to 38 percent. That's more than 10 percent lower than a year ago. He's also seeing lower approval ratings among his key constituencies, including women, people of color and young people. An associate director of the poll says people's deflated view of the economy is a contributing factor. There may be an orca off Cape Cod. Fishermen reported seeing the killer whale off the coast on Sunday. It's a fairly rare occurrence. Senior scientists at the Center for Coastal Studies, uh, Stormy Mayo, Charles Stormy Mayo, says they used to come to the area more frequently for food. We haven't seen them probably because uh, the tuna are not as common as they once were. But occasionally we hear about orcas 
passing beyond the Cape. Mayo says what is odd about the sighting is that it's a solo whale, not a pod or a family unit. He says by now the whale could have made it up to Canadian waters. 72 degrees now in the Boston area. Nice night tonight. Partly cloudy skies. Windy down around the low 50s. Then for tomorrow should be a nice day. 72 degrees tops. Lots of sunshine. Uh, dry and breezy once again. Still 72 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden headed to Buffalo today to show his support for the community there after the mass shooting over the weekend that left 10 people dead. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism. Terrorism. Domestic terrorism. The role of enforcing New York laws, whether on domestic terrorism or guns, falls to State Attorney General Letitia James. She was with the president in Buffalo today. She joins me now. Thank you for making the time on what I imagine is a hard day in a row of of way too many hard days. Thank you for having me. It's been um, a rough last few days. And um, it'll be even more difficult in the days to come as we funeralize these 10 victims. Yeah. Um, What are you going to do? What can you do about gun violence? Um, We need to, let me just say first that um, I'm so happy that the president and the first lady made the time to visit Buffalo and to speak to some of the family members. The eyes of the nation are on Buffalo. Um, And our focus, obviously, should be on a real and present danger, and that is white supremacy. Um, It was really important that the governor called out this act of hate for what it really was, domestic terrorism, fueled by white supremacist beliefs and racism, racism, and and, and and a racist theory, which has been propagated by... um, those on social media, as well as um, cable news, and by some elected officials. And from this point on, I'm respecting the families. I'm awaiting notices of the funerals. I believe the first funeral will be Monday. Okay. I'm so glad um, that Officer Selter will receive um, a uh, full tribute. Um, the police will recognize him as if he died um, uh, as a, a active law enforcement officer, um, because he was a hero that day. If, if um, I may um, mm-hmm. return to what the president called for today, among the things he called for was also keeping assault weapons off the streets. Um, I will note, it as would, you know, it would New, be York, great. New York already yeah. has some of the toughest gun laws in the country. New York already has a ban on the sale of most assault-style firearms. New York already has a red flag law designed to stop gun sales to people who might pose a threat. But here we are. So my question again, what are you going to do? New York has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, but if other states don't regulate guns uh, like we do, um, we unfortunately are powerless to a certain extent to fully crack down on them. The Iron Pipeline, most of these guns come from the South with lax gun laws. Um, 
we are looking at perhaps bringing some cases against some gun manufacturers and gun distributors. As you know, they enjoy immunity um, because Congress right now, particularly the GOP, um, are uh, in the pockets of um, the, the gun lobby. Although you've and, pledged to hold gun manufacturers and distributors liable, what can you do? Right now, the state of New York, the state legislature crafted a, a law. We will be testing that law. We are de- trying to um, develop some cases um, and pursue um, an exception that they created to um, the immunity law, uh, which would allow us to go forward in cases of negligence. Mm-hmm. And again, we are investigating and examining and trying to determine um, a fact pattern, which in fact is consistent with that law. Um, we, I anticipate that the law will be challenged by the gun lobby, uh, but nonetheless, it's important that we not sit on our hands. We do all that we can do, again, to provide safety to the residents of the state of New York. There are a whole lot of questions coming from yeah. residents of Buffalo, from others on social media saying, if the shooter were a black man, he wouldn't have been given time to surrender. The police would have shot him. Um, you are a black woman. You have seen way too many of these incidents. Do you yes. have an answer to that? Let me just say that there, um, in this particular case, the gentleman wore armor, headgear and full body armor. Um, had the police confronted him, um, he would, there would have been more individuals, I believe, who would have died, um, members of the law enforcement. Um, and so I understand the anger on the streets of Buffalo. I heard it when I was there. I recognize that. But right now, what we need to do is respect the victims and, the, and their families. We need to funeralize, um, funeralize all 10 victims. And then we need to have open and honest discussions about race and police and community relations. Yeah. Um, in the minute we have left, uh, you referenced that you heard some of the fury in Buffalo. Um, you were shouted yes. down there by residents over the weekend, people yes. who sounded really tired of hearing promises from leaders when the killings just don't stop. What would you say to them now? So the complaint that you heard was from one in two individuals who um, we all know, um, individuals who focus on issues that have been investigated and resolved, and there are reports um, that we have prepared. Unfortunately, these two individuals have not read those reports. They focus primarily on um, the one gentleman brought up, India Cummings. We did a full investigation. That, are, that report is on our website. And the, and the other individual talked about the fact that we have not prosecuted any police. And again, we right. uh, don't prosecute police. We focus on investigations. And so your message is conversation. You need to hear from people. We need to hear forward. from people. Okay. We need to have more discussions. That's why um, I've, I went to Buffalo and plan on going, returning to Buffalo this weekend. And we'll be at some of the funerals starting next week. Letitia James. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much. New York Attorney General Letitia James. Five states hold primaries with notable races for governor and the U.S. House, but top billing goes to the open U.S. Senate contests in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. NPR national political correspondent Don Gagné joins us now from Pennsylvania to give us an update. Hey, Don. Hey. 
So let's start on the Republican side in this Pennsylvania Senate race. It's all of a sudden a three-candidate primary, right? Boy, it, it sure is. For a long time, it was between two, uh, celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, Dr. Oz to a lot of people, and former hedge fund CEO Dave McCormick. Uh, both have a lot of money, both independently wealthy. But recently, a third candidate who is not wealthy, I should add, has surged in the polls and is in the mix, very much in the mix. She She's Kathy Barnett, a conservative commentator, largely unknown, uh, but she is right in the spotlight. Uh, it's not been a totally smooth adjustment either. She turned away media from some events in recent days. Her opponents have been digging into her past, uh, social media and the like. They have found uh, Islamophobic remarks and other things that they've highlighted. Uh, I will add here that Kathy Barnett is a huge Trump supporter and says Trump was wrong not to endorse her. And she told an audience in Scranton last night that conservatives don't need to settle for Oz or McCormick. And I have worked very hard to make sure that you don't have to hold your nose this time and vote for the lesser of two evil. I am your best chance at ever getting anyone in office who will actually fight for you. Let me add one more biographical thing. She has gained attention after that draft opinion from the Supreme Court on abortion rights leaked. She has talked openly about how her mother became pregnant at age 11 with her, with Kathy, uh, after a rape. And a lot of uh, Republican uh, voters have rallied because of that story. Wow. What about the other two candidates, Dr. Oz McCormick? Okay, Oz actually has the endorsement of Trump, and he's leaned heavily into that, especially to try to prove his conservative credentials are real. A lot of voters will tell you they have doubts that he's actually a conservative. He's held a small lead in polling since getting that endorsement, but uh, analysts say Barnett may be benefiting from conservative discontent about Oz. Oz, meanwhile, held a teletown hall with Trump last night. Trump talked about Oz and the Dr. Oz TV show been listening to him for a long time. He's smart, he's tough, and he'll never let you down. And he's a loyal MAGA person. And again, I've known him for a long time, and he'll be your next senator. He's going to win it all. Uh, meanwhile, McCormick has been talking up his own conservative credentials. He's the most establishment candidate in the mix. He and Oz are both continuing uh, to spend a lot of money on it. Okay, let's turn to the Democratic side. There is an open Senate seat that would, that would be a big pickup for them. What's their candidate like? Uh, it, it feels like John Fetterman is likely to be the party's nominee. Uh, he's had a solid, persistent polling lead. But Fetterman has had health issues over the weekend. Today, he announced he's getting a pacemaker put in after revealing uh, Sunday that he suffered a minor, they say a very minor, stroke on Friday. So right at the end of the campaign, he's knocked off the trail for at least a week, perhaps longer. And what should we watch for in the North Carolina Senate race? Uh, so on the Republican side, uh, it's another race that's been shaped by a Trump endorsement. Uh, you know, in the way that Dr. Oz has not has not sprinted away from the pack in Pennsylvania because of that endorsement, Congressman Ted Budd 
got Trump's backing in North Carolina early, and he has distanced himself from the field, including from conservative former Governor Pat McCrory. So it may be Bud against Sherry Beasley in the fall. She's likely to emerge on the Democratic side. She was the first black woman to serve as Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Lots of drama. That is NPR's Don Gagne. Thank you for all of tonight's key results. You can check out npr.org. Listening to All Things Considered. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Texas has a new sex ed curriculum that allows discussion of birth control instead of just abstinence. But critics say the lessons are silent on the issues of consent or sexual or gender identity. Checking business news, Wall Street rallied today. The Dow pulled in 431 points, or one and a third percent, to close at 32,655. S&P rose two percent to close at 4089. NASDAQ grew by two and three quarters percent to end the day at 11,985. Marketplace has details coming up in just over an hour at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. Join WBR Tuesday, June 2nd for the Moth Main Stage featuring five luminaries who'll tell stories based on the theme Past Tense, Future Perfect. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And Zoo New England with Zootopia June 4th a gala supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos to inspire caring and action for wildlife. More at zoonewengland.org. Pretty nice out there right now. 72 degrees should fall to about 52 overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. For tomorrow, 72 degrees tops with sunshine through the day. Should be dry and breezy tomorrow. Thursday could bring back some showers, but mostly in the morning. Overcast during the day, only making it to about 62 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It was 32 years ago, 1990, when the first Golden Arches appeared in Russia. Today we're opening the first McDonald's in Moscow. The Big Macs made a big impact. Thousands ate at McDonald's today, and the ones I talked with sounded like converts to the faith of fast food. Hamburgers are rare in the Soviet Union, and today we are told one customer there tried to eat his with a spoon. 
30,000 people were served on opening day at the original location on Pushkin Square. They had to stay open hours past closing time because so many people were still in line. Now that restaurant, along with hundreds more, is shutting down. McDonald's is leaving Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Joining us now is Christy Ironside. She's an economic historian of Russia at McGill University. Professor Ironside, welcome. Thanks for having me. Take us back to that moment, 1990, and how big a deal this was or wasn't in Russia. This is a huge deal. They opened this McDonald's to enormous fanfare. In fact, the, the picture of that line is still one of those, those kind of iconic images that people associate with Russia's transition to capitalism, even though it happened before the Soviet Union collapsed. How did this play in the U.S.? And I, I know it was McDonald's of Canada that actually brought that first deal together, but, but what was the American reaction to that moment? It was huge. Every major newspaper covered this. Uh, this was absolutely portrayed as an example of the Soviet Union embracing capitalist principles. They were interested in learning how to serve people on a mass scale and in a very efficient, profitable way. And so from the American perspective, this actually indicated that communism was beginning to, uh, to sort of collapse under its own contradictions. We've been talking about the, the symbolism of those golden arches showing up. I know there's symbolism in them coming down. And then there's practical impact too, right? This, this will affect people's jobs. Absolutely. Thousands of people are going to lose their jobs, not just you know people who are making burgers, flipping burgers and serving them, but all the people who work on those farms, you know, who are producing the potatoes that go into those French fries and McDonald's. Um, but for the more nationalistic types, it's seen as, you know, maybe a, a, a positive symbol that it's going down because there were people even in the 90s who were who were not very happy about the fact that they spread so quickly that, that they were, again, sort of proving this capitalist business model. Put this in the context of the many Western companies that are turning their back on Russia over the issue of the war in Ukraine. Um, McDonald's is obviously one of the biggest, most prominent, most symbolic ones, but hardly alone. There are dozens, if not at this point, hundreds of firms that have pulled out. It's been dizzying, actually. And uh, one has to wonder if this is a kind of unexpected dimension of all of this from the Russian government's perspective, because I imagine they expected the financial sanctions were coming because that's what came after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. But I don't think they were expecting this because this is much less coordinated. It's not a government pushing this. This is companies themselves doing this. I have to say I'm a little surprised that McDonald's decided to, you know, really pull out because they've they've always kind of waited out a lot of these crises. But this means that they they must have done a very serious cost benefit analysis of staying in that market and decided it just wasn't worth it. And we've been speaking to you because of your expertise in in Russian history and and Russian economics, but can I ask just personally how you feel uh, as you watch this just milestone? It's really it's really sad on some level. I have to be honest, I don't eat at McDonald's very often. Uh, like many North Americans, McDonald's was kind of a place that I remember going to for one of the first times I went to Russia because I my Russian wasn't very good then and I knew how to order a hamburger if I didn't know how to order other things. So I, you know, I have some memories associated with my own trips to Russia that um, that this is you know making me kind of reflect on a little bit. Um, but I think it's sad because it also shows that you know 30 years of economic integration with the rest of the world is coming to this very abrupt end. It takes a very long time to rebuild those relationships. And as it turns out, not very long to blow them up entirely. Christy Ironside is assistant professor of Russian history at McGill University. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. In Texas schools, the standards for teaching sex education have not been updated for more than 20 years. 
Now there's finally a new curriculum ready to go, one that allows discussion of birth control, in addition to the traditional emphasis on abstinence. Elena Rivera at member station KERA in Dallas has the story. Kelly Bird is a junior at a Dallas area high school. She remembers when a group came to talk to her eighth grade class about sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. They had a bunch of tennis balls and they wrote STIs on them. And then they had a couple of kids come up and put on gloves. And they were like, okay, if he throws the ball to her and she has a glove on, then she's protected. But if she doesn't have a glove on, then she'll get the disease or something. It was really weird. Callie says the group didn't really explain what the STIs actually were, just that people should wear condoms. By the time you're in eighth grade, you know what a condom is. You know to wear a condom. So it's kind of like, okay, we get it, but like, why? And what are other things we can do? Kelly says she hasn't gotten any sex ed in school since that presentation years ago, because in Texas, health education is optional after middle school. Lots of high schools don't offer it at all. In 2020, Kelly started training to be a peer educator through Planned Parenthood of Greater Texas. She learned about pregnancy prevention methods, like the difference between birth control and Plan B. She says she felt like she was playing catch up. My friends and I will talk about sex, but not like sex education. So I don't know if they know about other methods of birth control. I don't know. That's worrying to J.R. Chester, who's worked as a health advocate and educator for Dallas youth for more than 10 years. Texas is in the top 10 states for teen birth rates in the nation and has the overall highest rate of repeat teen birth. I was a repeat teen mom, so our oldest is 16 now. I know the information that would have been helpful for me in preventing teen pregnancy in my own personal life, and it's something that I want to make sure our future generations have. An updated curriculum will be taught in schools beginning this fall. It still stresses abstinence first, but now includes info about birth control and STIs. Chester says her work is to make sure kids know they can ask questions without shame or guilt. I think people hear sexual health and some of them get really squeamish about it, but sexual health is your understanding of your body, your basic functioning. But it's become more complicated to even get this information to Texas youth. Last year, the legislature adopted a new policy that requires parents or caregivers to opt into health education rather than opt out. Texas leaders say parents should have rights over what their kids learn. But opting into sex ed means Texas is one of only a few states that does that. When I think about the paperwork that I've fished out of my child's backpack three weeks late, this kind of terrifies me. That's Jen Biendo with the Texas Campaign to Prevent Teen Pregnancy. The big concern with the opt-in policy is that some kids will just slip through the cracks. Maybe they're not living with a parent or guardian, or maybe they don't have a parent or guardian who's closely engaged. Those might be the kids that need this information the most. Students who do opt in are not going to learn anything about consent, gender, or LGBTQ plus issues. That's not in the new curriculum. For high school student Kelly Bird, she says there's still too much left out. I just hope we move past that and instead actually teach them what they need to know. But the opt-in policy in Texas seems to be gaining ground. The state has also required parents to give permission for their kids to learn about child abuse, family violence, dating violence, and sex trafficking. For NPR News, I'm Elena Rivera in Dallas. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KERA and Kaiser Health News. And this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, Polish people are welcoming Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing the war. They often invite them into their homes. We took a group of people. In the morning, there was eight people in my room. Coming up, young adults in Warsaw talk about the life-changing impact of helping those in need. In the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be able to see a partial moon anyway. Windy, down around the low 50s. Tomorrow, comfortable 72 degrees with bright sunshine. Could see showers on Thursday morning with cloudy skies, cooling to the mid-60s, and then brighter and warmer on Friday. In the Boston area, now 72 degrees at 530. News headlines from NPR are coming up next. Former U.S. National Security Council Director for European Affairs Alexander Vindman said Russia's invasion of Ukraine marks the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Vindman will join me for a candid conversation about the war in Ukraine at the WBUR Gala on May 26. Limited tickets remain at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to our sponsors, the Gammon Family Charitable Foundation and Dinah Beekner-Vischer. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Pennsylvania Republican voters are deciding on candidates for governor and U.S. Senate. Sam Dunklaw of member station WITF reports both races are crowded. Both races feature seven candidates. Many have campaigned on anger at COVID-19 restrictions and falsehoods about past elections. Polls show Republican voters prefer state Senator Doug Mastriano for governor. Former President Donald Trump endorsed the two-term lawmaker, who was at the January 6th rally and march on the U.S. Capitol and has been subpoenaed over his involvement by a U.S. House committee. Meanwhile, in the Senate race, Trump-endorsed celebrity physician Mehmet Oz is just slightly ahead with voters over conservative commentator Kathy Barnett. Trump and others have tried to stop Barnett's momentum by raising questions about her background. Races may take a while to call due to mail-in ballot counting rules. For NPR News, I'm Sam Dunklaw in Harrisburg. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the first COVID-19 vaccine booster for children ages 5 to 11. NPR's Rob Stein has more. Until now, only adolescents ages 12 and older and adults have been eligible for boosters. The companies say a third shot is safe for younger children and appears to boost antibodies to levels high enough to protect them against the Omicron variant. The authorization comes as an even more contagious version of Omicron is helping fuel yet another surge of infections, and schools have dropped the requirement that elementary school students wear masks. NPR's Rob Stein. Retail sales rose nine-tenths of a percent in April as people continued to spend despite inflation at a nearly 40-year high. The Commerce Department says the increase was driven by sales of cars, electronics, and eating out at restaurants. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 431. The Nasdaq up 321. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Attorneys with Harvard Law School's Immigration and Refugee Clinic Program are suing the U.S. government for denying a Harvard medical scholar entry to the country. They claim the scholar and her family were discriminated against because she and her husband were born in Iran. 
The family was coming to the U.S. from Canada, where they are citizens. The scholar says she plans to return to Canada after the fellowship, but advocates say Border Patrol claimed that the family was planning to reside permanently in the U.S. Federal officials have declined to comment. Gas prices in Massachusetts continue to climb. The average cost for regular gas is now $4.66 a gallon. That's up six cents from yesterday, 23 cents over the past week. AAA Northeast spokesperson Mary McGuire says you should chop around before you fill your gas tank. Yesterday, for example, within a mile and a half, I saw a price differential among gas retailers of almost 40 cents a gallon. The cost of diesel is also rising. It's up two cents from yesterday to $6.40 a gallon. Governor Baker today said he thinks the state legislature should consider suspending the state's gas tax. The Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance is calling on House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka to support that move. Lawmakers in the Massachusetts House are moving closer on a vote to overhaul the state's marijuana regulations. The House bill is similar to a Senate version that increases oversight on host community agreements to promote greater diversity in the industry. The bill also allows communities to allow pot cafes where patrons could both purchase and use marijuana products. A reward leading to the arrest of a man wanted in connection with a double murder in New Hampshire has been increased. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office says a reward of up to $33,500 is being offered in the shooting deaths of Stephen and Wendy Reed. It happened last month. More information, including a description of the suspect, is available on the Concord, New Hampshire Police Department's website. MBTA police are warning fans about buying counterfeit Boston Celtics playoff tickets. They say some victims bought the tickets at T-stations, and by the time they realized they were fake, the seller had disappeared. T-Police recommend people only buy tickets through authorized ticket agencies. Game one of the Eastern Conference finalists tonight in Miami, Celtics' first home game in the best-of-seven series, will be Saturday. It's 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, windy down around the low 50s for tomorrow. Lots of sunshine, highs about 72 degrees, which is where it is right now. In fact, 72 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. There are certain events that define a generation, like 9-11, the global financial crisis, or the pandemic. Since the war in Ukraine began, about 3 million refugees have come to Poland in just a few months. Polish people have offered their time, their money, and even their homes. And so I met with three Polish young adults to see what impact they believe these events will have on their generation. (laughs) We gathered at a crowded outdoor cafe in Warsaw on a warm spring night. People smoked and sipped drinks as the sun sank behind the old city. One of the young Poles in the group is actually someone I first met at Poland's border with Ukraine in early March at the beginning of the war, a 24-year-old film student named Tomek Mondre. 
the thing which changed me the most, I think, was that I came back with a refugee. He used his car to shuttle Ukrainians from the border, and then he offered his bedroom here in Warsaw to a refugee he'd never met before, a young man from Morocco who'd been living in Ukraine. I was sharing the, 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 the bedroom with him for almost a week. So you had a roommate? Yeah, I had, I mean, yeah, I had a roommate, and it was really demanding. He was a total stranger. Yeah, he was a total stranger. I met him at the, at the, at the border. I have a story similar to Tomek. The day the war started, 25-year-old Basia Olszewska couldn't stop crying. So she and her roommates decided to do something. We took a group of three people from Congo. They were studying in Kiev. But it was uh, like in the morning, there was eight people in my room. These young adults say the experience of rushing to help, of inviting people into their homes, of bearing witness to their neighbors' suffering, it has changed them. So I, I would say that my perception of everything changed when I first came to the border. 22-year-old Lilia Wynn is working in the legal department of a pharmaceutical company while she gets her law degree. And the last few months have made her reevaluate her whole life. Those five days were the most intense uh, days in my life. After that, when I came back to Warsaw, I needed to reevaluate everything that I do in my life, actually. That's a huge statement. It is a huge statement because I, I have a corporate job. So it was really two different extremes, you know. And um, now I just want to quit my job and start a foundation with my friends. Can you say that on the radio? Are you going to get in trouble if you say that? No, no. <laughs> I actually talked with my boss today. As late afternoon turned to evening, the facade of Poland's National Theater across the street lit up in blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And I asked Lilia, Basha, and Tomek whether they think these changes will last. If the war ended tomorrow, if the Ukrainian refugee crisis ended and everybody went home, do you think your lives would go back to what they were before the war? Definitely not, and I already have pl plans ahead to start and help in other regions of the world, not only uh, when it comes to Ukraine. But my first thing, my initial thing to do after, if the war uh, ends, I would uh, want to be involved in rebuilding Ukraine and a few of the regions there. And I already am in contact with different organizations that are all already planning it. I mean, like, definitely the thing I think we all need to do, I mean, maybe not all, but, like, tons of people need to do, need to rebuild the Ukraine. So we have no exactly idea how to do it, but I think we'll manage somehow. Pasha? I think I should do the things that I can do. I don't see myself rebuilding a Ukrainian country. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's not for me. Uh, I can organize, uh, I don't know, camps for children. It is the thing that I usually do. I can't go back to the situation that we had before. You three, you're all pretty socially conscious. Do you think the changes that you're describing personally have affected the Polish population more broadly? I think with all with this refugee crisis and all those stuff with the right wing saying before that we shouldn't accept refugees and right now like kind of switching it, 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 it its premises and all those stuff but i think it will change something i don't know how much but i definitely hope that it will change something
Basha, what do you think? That's true. Uh, our generation now, we know exactly where is the small city in Ukraine mm. and from where did the refugees come and it is a fantastic thing because we're interesting. We love these Ukraine people. Mm. We, we really care. Five years ago, there was a refugee crisis of people fleeing the war in Syria. And yeah. Poland was not very welcoming. Now there is this Ukrainian refugee crisis and Poland is very welcoming. If five years in the future, there is a refugee crisis from a country that is not on Poland's border, do you think this experience will change Poland's approach to refugees, even if they're not from a country that's the next door neighbor? I'm not very enthusiastic about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I should say that. It's the same as me. Like I wouldn't say it's very um, realistic, to be honest, if it's a country from the Middle East or anywhere from Asia or Africa, because we do live in a very Catholic country, you know, so we need to be actually honest with each other, you know. So you think this has changed a generation, but maybe not transformed not a generation? Not transformed, yeah, like completely. It it's a long way ahead, seriously. But maybe it's the first step. Yeah. Some progress is better than no progress. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also hard to predict how everything will go further in the future because some people will get at some point annoyed that there's so many Ukrainians in Warsaw, you know? Yeah. And there could be a backlash. Yeah, that everything is like now focused on the Ukrainians. We need to accommodate them somehow, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. the government is making. Uh, major decisions and some people might not like it. I'm thinking about the contrast between the tragedy that is happening on the other side of the border and the awakening that you and people of your generation are feeling and the sort of gratitude at being able to play a useful role. And so could I just ask you to briefly describe how you balance those two things? I think it is quite not beautiful but um, I would say overwhelming that you are able to help in this times of crisis and uh, being a good help as well. And I am actually astonished by how literally strangers work with strangers to help strangers, you know, and for me it is quite like moving actually. That's Lilia Wynn. Basha Olszewska and Tomek Mondre speaking with me in Warsaw about how the Ukrainian refugee crisis has changed their generation. Tomorrow, African students who fled Ukraine when the war began see a double standard in the Polish response. We are so tired of being here. Nothing is happening. Our life is we are just like stuck in a cage. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. has now recorded more than one million deaths from COVID-19, and the federal government has paid out more than $2 billion to cover funeral costs for COVID victims. But there are still potentially hundreds of thousands of people eligible for the benefits who haven't applied for them. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports. 
Two caskets, one silver, one white, sit by holes in the ground. It's a small graveside service on a humid afternoon in the town of Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Some bright morning when this life is over. Through tears, the family sings, I'll fly away. They'd lost a mom and dad, grandmother and grandfather, both to COVID. They died five days apart. They were Allison Lever's parents. This was mid-2020. It was a crushing tragedy, and there was no life insurance or burial policy. We just figured we were just going to have to put it on our credit cards and pay it off, and that was how we're going to deal with that. So. <laughs> but then, in April of last year, FEMA started offering to reimburse funeral expenses up to $9,000, which is roughly the average cost of a funeral. And it was retroactive, so Lever says she applied ASAP. If this horrible thing had to happen, at least we weren't going to be out the cash for it. FEMA launched a big call center because everyone has to call to initiate the process. Lever started assembling the death certificates and receipts from the funeral home and cemetery. She uploaded them and heard nothing for months. Eventually, she called and learned the receipts she submitted had different signatures, one from her husband, another from her sister. That was a problem. And even though it was a joint funeral, to get the full amount per parent, she had to have separate receipts. It was frustrating, but she got it done. I was like, I am going to get that money come hell or high water. It's just, that's just what's going to happen. Clerical challenges have discouraged some participation, especially for those with deaths from early in the pandemic, says Jacqueline Rothenberg, FEMA's chief spokesperson. Some people with death certificates didn't necessarily have COVID listed as the cause of death. And we do have a responsibility to our taxpayer stewards to make sure that that is, in fact, the cause. But Rothenberg says FEMA is trying to work with everyone. Even though the agency has spent nearly all the $2 billion initially budgeted, Rothenberg says there's a new pot of stimulus funding. We analyzed FEMA's data compared to COVID fatalities. States with the highest participation are clustered in the South. But even there, more than a third still haven't applied. Some Western states, including Oregon, Washington, Alaska, and Arizona, have had just one in three participate. And most people are eligible. One of the few disqualifiers is if someone prepaid for their funeral. FEMA is launching an ad campaign to get the word out, but they're also leaning on community groups connected to those who need to know about the money. Chris Kotcher started COVID Survivors for Change. We were able to connect people to some of the survivors who had been through that process already, sort of just help them walk through it. Many just need someone to do it for them. Stephanie Smith of Carlisle, Kentucky, lost her father to COVID. Her mother, who was 83 at the time, had no chance. She's a very smart, spunky lady, but she's never used a computer. At a minimum, it requires scanning or faxing. She probably would not have attempted to do it because the whole process just would have been overwhelming for her. But Smith was able to jump through the hoops without much trouble, and $9,000, she says, is enough to make life considerably easier as her mom adjusts to being a COVID widow. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up next on WBR's All Things Considered, NPR honors Cambridge musician Elisa Amador. And this evening on Marketplace, to get inflation back down to target, the Federal Reserve has to help manage Americans' inflation expectations, but that won't be easy. People see gasoline prices and grocery store prices every week, and that is going to 
you know, over time, that is going to seep into their views about how they think inflation is going to evolve. Marketplace starts at 6.30. In sports, the Red Sox host the best team in the AL West tonight at Fenway for their second game of the series with Houston. Nathan Navaldi pitches 7.10 start time. Tonight, the Celtics and Miami Heat will play game one of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Celtics defeated the Milwaukee Bucks to get there. The Heat beat the Philadelphia 76ers. First two games of the best of seven conference final are in Miami. Boston's first home game will be Saturday. And fans have voted former New England Patriots defensive lineman Vince Wilfork to the team's Hall of Fame. Wilfork is the Pats' sixth player to be selected in his first year of eligibility. He played for the Pats for 11 seasons. The team appeared in four Super Bowls in that time. It's 5.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wilbur, featuring Andy Borowitz, the Profiles in Ignorance Tour, September 28th. Tickets and information at thewilbur.com. But as Veronica is meeting and hearing from American activists, she starts to realize because the U.S. has had this legal protection in place for so many years, this whole system has been built up around it. And she starts to think the American activists might be making a mistake. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A few weeks ago, Eric St. Marie was taking an early morning walk on the Canadian side of the Detroit River when he saw something that no one has seen for more than a hundred years. So he grabbed his phone, shot a video. A straight up river otter in the Detroit River. Have you ever heard of something so controversial. (laughs) He couldn't believe his eyes. At first, he thought the large brown furry animal was probably a mink or a muskrat or maybe even a beaver. But when it dove, I saw that its tail wasn't flattened like a beaver's would be. And so that really only left otters as as what it could be, which I didn't even think was an option in the Detroit River as, a, as an animal to see. So I got really excited. That is because the river was notorious for its pollution. Factories on both sides of the border had dumped oil in there before there were laws against doing that. It was a toxic mess. There was so much oil floating on the river and the waterfowl would come through on their migration. They would land in the few pockets of open water during winter and that was filled with oil and they would 11,000 ducks and geese would die in a single day because of that. That's John Hartig. He's a scientist who has studied this ecosystem his entire career. He didn't think it was clean enough for river otter. And during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, because of all that oil and petroleum products, river otter could not even have survived in that because the oil would mat their fur and they couldn't thermoregulate and they couldn't keep warm. And they would die. But in recent years, John Hartig says the river has come a long way. You can see bald eagles, peregrine falcons, lake sturgeon, and now river otters, a mammal that can only survive when water is clean. In this journey of revival of the river, it's so important that we um, have something like the river otter return because this gives hope. Um, If the Detroit River is now cleaner for river otter. It is indeed cleaner for you and me and others who visit here or live here because we share the same ecosystem.
This morning, our colleagues at Morning Edition got to make the big announcement. The winner of the 2022 Tiny Desk Contest is... Cuando miro afuera, cuando miro adentro, cuando miro afuera otra vez. That is Elisa Amador and her song, Milanga Accidental. Hasta el mero centro, siempre soy testigo y it's so good, and I want to note this was the fifth time that Elisa had entered. Total testament to the power of never giving up. So, without further ado, maybe just a little little drum roll here. <laughs> I want to say welcome. Elisa's with us today. Welcome. Congratulations. Hello, Mary Louise. This is um, such an honor, and it it really does feel quite surreal. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, can I start there with this was the fifth time you've entered? <laughs> it's amazing. What made yeah. you think, you know, maybe I'm just going to give this thing one more shot? Oh, my God. Well, I did not think I was going to be sending in a song this year. And um, about 48 hours before the deadline, I just had this idea for a video where I would share a song in Spanish for the first time. Um, but oh, you've submitted in English before? I've always submitted in English. And so this time I made a video with a song in Spanish and I created these little animations that I called a visual translation of the lyrics so that even if people don't speak Spanish yet, I like to say, <laughs> um, <laughs> even if they don't speak it yet, um, they can understand what's behind this song. Milonga Accidental, well, Milonga is a folk rhythm from Argentina and Uruguay, and that's where my grandfather's from, and I lived there for a period of time in my early 20s, and it's a really driving rhythm. I've always felt like I identified with Argentina and my mom's Puerto Rico and my dad's New Mexico and all of the other places where my family is from and all of the places where I've lived. And it can feel sometimes like all of those identities and places are clashing or like I don't fit neatly into one box. And this song is, is an ode to that. So I want to go to the moment you get the call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're told you win, you, you finally won it, which, as you know, <laughs> has propelled past winners to the Grammy Awards, towards Broadway. Okay, um, okay, don't stress me out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pointing to all the doors you could walk through, which you wanted to. But it, was yeah. it a mix then of feeling, oh, my God, I'm so excited, and oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? Yes, that is very accurate. Honestly, in the last few months... I was starting to really plan an exit from a career in music. Really? Yes. So it's just been so hard for all of us. And a career in independent music is challenging in good times. And these have been uniquely painfully difficult times. So I was feeling so wrung out that in the last couple of weeks I was I was starting to like 
do the logistics of when I would stop taking gigs, when would be my last gig. I need to write a resume. I've never written a resume because I've just been a musician full time <laughs> my whole adult life. Like, where will I work? I don't know what I have to do. And and grieving, grieving this thought of letting go of music, but feeling like I'm just so tired. I don't think I can keep doing this. Just so amazing how life throws you <laughs> these curveballs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> My friends call it an intervention from the universe. <laughs> I think that's about right. Well, may I say I am so glad you stuck with it. I'm so glad you Thank gave you. it a fifth swing. And um, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. It's such an honor. I do not take this lightly. I just feel really honored. Really, it really is, honored. It is a total joy to uh, to lift you and your music up. Congratulations again. Thank you. That is Elisa Amador. She is the winner of the 2022 Tiny Desk Contest, and her song is Milanga Accidental. De lo más profundo a este momento. This message comes from our 2022 sponsor of the Tiny Desk Contest, State Farm, who believes in supporting communities and musicians nationwide. State Farm is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should have a nice night coming up tonight. Windy, partly cloudy skies, temperatures around the low 50s. And for tomorrow, a beautiful day. Comfortable 72 degrees with bright sunshine. Could see a few showers Thursday morning with cloudy skies during the day, cooling to the mid-60s, then brighter and warmer for Friday. 70 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the first COVID booster for children ages 5 to 11. Until now, only adults and children ages 12 and older were eligible for the booster. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden goes to Buffalo, New York to address the racist attack Saturday that left 10 black people dead. 
we need to say as clearly and force as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. Idaho's Republican primary is seen as a national test for how far to the right the GOP can lean as several candidates tied to extremist groups are running for governor and the legislature. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The evacuation of remaining soldiers from the massive Azovstal steel plant marked the latest development in Russia's attack on Ukraine. Hundreds of Ukrainian fighters have left the factory and turned themselves over to Russian hands. And now both Russia and Ukraine are signaling that efforts to negotiate an end to the conflict have been put on hold. NPR's Greg Myrie has the latest. An advisor to Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said that all all talks with Russia have been suspended. He predicted they would eventually resume, but said Russia needed to come to grips with a war that was, quote, not going to Russia's rules, schedule, or plans. Meanwhile, Russia's deputy foreign minister, Andrei Rudinko, said that Ukraine has, quote, practically withdrawn from the negotiating process. The countries have held periodic talks since Russia invaded nearly three months ago. But with no signs of a breakthrough, the negotiations ground to a halt. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv, Ukraine. Efforts to advance talks between Venezuela's government and opposition leaders there involve a U.S.-approved change in business practices by a major U.S. oil company. NPR's Franco Ordonez explains. The Biden administration will ease restrictions on a U.S. oil company operating in Venezuela, allowing the company to negotiate directly with the Venezuelan government. A senior administration official says the narrow license will allow Chevron to negotiate terms for future activities in Venezuela, but does not allow the company to enter into any specific agreement that would allow it to drill or export Venezuelan oil. The official said the measures are being taken at the request of the U.S.-backed opposition government who plan to resume negotiations in Mexico City. The move also follows a trip by U.S. officials to Maduro's presidential palace in March to discuss energy sanctions and secure the release of two detained Americans. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The Commerce Department is finding that high inflation is not taking much of a toll on retail sales. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Retail sales rose by nine-tenths of one percent last month, a jump that reflects both increased consumption and higher prices. Shoppers spent more at both brick-and-mortar stores and online retailers. Car dealers also saw a jump in sales last month. The numbers suggest that Americans are eating out more. Restaurant sales jumped 2% in April, while spending at grocery stores declined. Spending at gas stations was also down last month, thanks to a temporary decline in gasoline prices. Gas prices have since rebounded, though, to a record high. AAA reports the average price of regular gas is now $4.52 a gallon. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closed up 431 points at 32,654. The S&P gained 2 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' biggest and most expensive hospital system is promising to reduce health care costs by $70 million a year. That's after the State Health Policy Commission said it has a, quote, spending problem. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Mass General Brigham says it will lower prices for its medical services by almost $54 million a year. 
It plans to reduce unnecessary hospitalizations and emergency room visits and take care of more patients at home and at lower-cost community sites. The state's Health Policy Commission is reviewing the plan to determine whether it goes far enough. This is the first time the watchdog agency has ever used its power to require a hospital system to cut costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Massachusetts will continue to offer pandemic-specific food assistance for eligible households. The Baker administration today announced it has federal approval to continue to provide the additional benefits. The program is for people who have children under the age of six and who already receive assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. The state says approximately 72,000 children and their families will begin to receive the additional benefits next month. We're learning more about the death of a Boston man who was killed by a red line train last month after his arm got caught in a train car door. 39-year-old Robinson Lallon was killed at the Broadway station after he tried to exit the car. An MBTA police report obtained by the Boston Globe indicates that after the incident, the train stopped for a short time in the tunnel by the station and then continued on. It was later taken out of service after officials determined it had been involved in the deadly accident. Federal investigators found the train car malfunctioned and allowed the train to move even though the door was obstructed. A special commission is unanimously recommending a new state motto and full redesign of the Massachusetts state seal. Activists argue the current versions are disparaging to Native Americans. Commission member Elizabeth Solomon is also a member of the Massachusetts tribe at Ponkapog. I think this is not just an issue of whether this is harmful to Indigenous people. It is also an issue of how the state is representing itself. The values that we claim to hold are not currently being reflected in the seal that we have. The current state seal depicts a Native American standing beneath a sword-wielding arm and the Latin motto, by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. A 170-year-old trophy awarded in the first intercollegiate sports competition is up for auction. The trophy oars from the uh, inaugural Harvard-Yale regatta were awarded in 1852, They're expected to fetch $3.5 million in online bidding that goes until next Tuesday. In the forecast, look for a nice night tonight. Partly cloudy skies should be dry and breezy, temperatures about 52. Then for tomorrow, look for lots of sunshine, highs about 72 degrees, breezy once again. It is 70 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. In Buffalo, New York today, a community continues to mourn. It's been three days since an 18-year-old self-proclaimed white supremacist is alleged to have shot and killed 10 black people at a grocery store and injured three other people, a racist attack that's left the nation reeling. President Biden and the First Lady arrived in Buffalo today to console families of the victims. Jill and I bring you this message from deep in our nation's soul. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail, and white supremacy will not have the last word. We're joined now by NPR's Adrian Florido, who is in Buffalo. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Emily. Tell us more about President Biden's visit. 
Well, his first stop was the grocery store where this massacre happened. Uh, he and First Lady Jill Biden laid a bouquet of white flowers and then spent some time there in silence. Later, at a community center, the president met privately with families of the victims before delivering a public speech. Uh, he held back tears. He told the families he hoped that from their pain, the nation would find purpose. And what else did he say? Well, he spoke at length about the ideology of white supremacy that fueled the alleged gunman and, and the so-called replacement theory that this gunman apparently subscribed to, a theory that elites want to replace and disempower white people by replacing them with non-whites. Biden called these views a lie, a poison festering in the U.S. and becoming more mainstream with the help of right-wing politicians and media. I and all of you reject the lie. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. And he said the consequences of not rejecting these views are evident here in Buffalo and in cities like Charleston, El Paso, and others where white nationalists have carried out mass killings in recent years. In the days since this shooting, there has been a lot of talk among advocates about the need for gun reform. Did the president address that? He said very little. Uh, he, he made a passing mention in his speech about the importance of keeping military-style assault weapons off of American streets, but he stopped short of committing to fight for that. It seemed uh, to be a, a tacit recognition that despite the persistence of these kinds of mass killings, gun control proposals are, are basically non-starters in Congress. And how are Buffalo residents reacting to the president's visit today? Well, reaction's been mixed. Uh, a crowd gathered outside the community center where the president spoke, and some people said they appreciated his visit. Uh, but Taniqua Simmons, a local activist, said that the president needed to say more about his plans to combat hate. What I need to know is what is my government going to do about these active groups? Like how many of these hate groups have to kill people before they are knocking down their doors and throwing them in jail? And as this community mourns, there is a case against the alleged killer that's moving forward. Where does that stand? Well, the suspect is still in custody here in Buffalo on a single count of first-degree murder to which he's pleaded not guilty. He'll be in court again on Thursday with uh, more charges expected. Uh, investigators are poring over several racist screeds he apparently posted online, his online and social media posts. They're trying to piece together how he planned this attack in recent days and months. Uh, federal prosecutors are also investigating, and they are likely to file a federal hate crimes charges, too. And Pierre's Adrian Florido in Buffalo, New York. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. To Idaho now, where Republican Governor Brad Little is facing a primary challenge today. Janice McGeehan is the state's lieutenant governor. She is one of several Republicans in Idaho primaries with ties to extremist militia groups. She recently spoke at a white nationalist conference, and she has the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. NPR's Kirk Siegler is based in Boise, the capital. He joins us now. Hey there, Kirk. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, set the stage a little more. Why is this primary getting so much attention? Well, Republicans hold a super majority here at this Capitol where I'm standing, especially since the pandemic. There has been a rise in extremism within the GOP. You know, Mary Louise, this is Idaho. There's a long history of extremism. You can think back to the Ruby Ridge standoff 30 years ago. The Aryan Nations was headquartered in the Idaho Panhandle. But lately, we're seeing extremism really enter the mainstream of Republican politics, just like we are across the country. There's a, even a faction here basically calling for armed rebellion. You know, in most other states, government Governor Brad Little would be a hard-line, hard-right Republican. He just mm. signed a Texas-style abortion ban. 
But as you say, Donald Trump in, endorsed Janice McGeehan. It's it's widely thought that Little will still secure the nomination, but these are unpredictable times, as we know. Idaho is one of the fastest growing states in the nation. It's hard to know how all the newcomers will vote. There has been a lot of white flight coming from California up here lately, especially since the pandemic. Huh. I want to hear more about Janice McGeehan. How, how did she become so prominent? Well, let's first point out uh, that the lieutenant governor here is an independently elected office, so she's not aligned with Governor Little. Uh, McGeehan really started sparring with him during the COVID lockdowns that were very brief here in Idaho. Uh, One time when he left the state and she was acting governor, she even signed an executive order banning all mask mandates in cities and schools. You may recall she also tried to call the National Guard down to the U.S.-Mexico border. This is Idaho. We're bordering Canada. Yeah. And when Governor Little returned home, he rescinded all the things she did and suggested it was tyrannical. Well, and is it working with voters? Any, can we measure whether it's helping her in this race? We don't really have a great idea, and that's why we're watching this primary so closely. We do know that Trump easily carried Idaho with one of his big, biggest wins in the nation, about 64% of the vote here. When you drive into the suburbs and the rural areas, you see Trump 2024 signs everywhere, and McGeehan is definitely going for his playbook. You know, she defended her appearance at the White Nationalist America First PAC conference back in March, and she also doubled down after this promotional video went viral recently. We're going to hear from it now where it looks as though she seems to be promoting violence. God calls us to pick up the sword and fight and Christ will reign in the state of Idaho. So Mary Louise, I'd say the Idaho primary is definitely going to be a national test for how far to the right the GOP can be pulled. You know, just the other day, the far-right extremist Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers was here on McGeehan's behalf. Rogers has been peddling a fake conspiracy that the U.S. government orchestrated the Buffalo mass shooting over the weekend. And just real quick, just to keep things interesting, Eamon Bundy is also in the race. That's right, although he recently switched his affiliation from Republican to Independent, so he's not in the primary, but he, he called the Republican Party corrupt and wicked, and you may recall he was wheeled out of this building here, the Idaho Capitol, in handcuffs after trespassing charges during the pandemic. All right, lots to keep you busy there in Boise and Pierreburg Sigler. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. The Food and Drug Administration authorized the first COVID-19 vaccine booster for young children today. So kids ages 5 to 11 can now get a third shot. NPR's health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey, Emily. What did the FDA authorize exactly? The FDA okayed a request from Pfizer and BioNTech for a third dose of their lower-dose pediatric vaccine for all kids ages 5 to 11 who got their second shots at least five months ago. Until now, only kids ages 12 and older and adults could get a booster. And why now? What's the rationale? Well, the idea is that the protection these kids got from two shots has faded over time, just like it has for older kids and and adults, especially against the Omicron variant. And the companies and the FDA say a small study indicates a third shot can safely boost antibodies back up to levels that would provide stronger protection, especially against Omicron. I talked about this with Dr. Yvonne Boldonado at Stanford University. She helped set policy for the American Academy of Pediatrics. She notes that it's been more than five months since most of these kids got vaccinated. So this is a really good time to really start thinking about getting those 5 to 11-year-olds their boosters. It does really make a difference for families who want to go traveling, who want to be out and about, um, and who want to protect their kids against potential complications of COVID disease. 
And that's especially important now that an even more contagious subvariant of Omicron is helping fuel yet another surge, and most people have stopped wearing their masks and taking other precautions. And do all medical experts think this third shot is needed? You know, Emily, it's mixed. Some do, but some say the most important thing is to get kids who haven't gotten any shots yet to get vaccinated, and that two shots are still doing the most important thing, protecting kids from getting really sick or dying. Here's Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who helps advise the FDA. I think we have to define what are the goals of a COVID vaccine. If the goals of a COVID vaccine are protection against serious illness, the evidence to date is that two doses of a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-old is protective against serious illness. And any added protection from a third shot probably won't last all that long. And, you know, Offit thinks it was a mistake for the FDA to skip letting his committee debate the pros and cons in a public forum, especially since most parents still haven't gotten their kids this age their first two shots. That makes me wonder, how much demand do you think there will be for a booster for these kids? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, some parents will probably rush out to get their kids ages 5 to 11 a third shot, but most probably won't. You know, that's, you know, less than a third of parents of kids ages 5 to 11 have gotten their kids the first two shots, and only about a quarter of those ages 12 to 17 have gotten boosters. So, you know, we'll have to see what happens. On Thursday, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention will consider whether to recommend parents boost all kids ages 5 to 11 or just make the booster an option for those who want or need it. So we're talking about kids between the ages of 5 to 11. What about kids younger than 5 who haven't been able to get any shots? Where does that where does that stand? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And many parents of uh, those littlest kids are really angry and frustrated that they haven't been able to get their, you know, little ones vaccinated. They feel left behind, like everybody's moving on, leaving them behind unprotected. And the FDA is planning to finally take that up next month. And the hope is a vaccine for babies and toddlers could finally be available by maybe late June or July. And Pierre's Rob Stein, thank you. You bet. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, Ukrainian high school teacher who escaped to Poland but is still teaching her pupils who are now spread out all over the world. That story is coming up. In business, new data from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors shows the median price for a single-family home in the state is now $590,000. That's up more than 12 percent from the same time last year. The association says home prices are affected by inflation and rising interest rates. The average 30-year fixed mortgage rate now stands or it now exceeds 5 percent, its highest level since 2011. Wall Street rallied today. The Dow pulled in 431 points, or one and a third percent, to close at 32,655. S&P rose 2 percent to close at 4089. The Nasdaq grew by 2 and 3 quarters percent to end the day at 11,985. Marketplace has details in just about 10 minutes. It's 6.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See available menus and order online at volantefarms.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. 
cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Win a diamond necklace or a cooking class in the WBUR Gala auction. Bid now at wbur.org gala. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight should be breezy, down around 52. Tomorrow, about 72 degrees with lots of sunshine, dry and breezy once again. This is WBUR, 70 degrees now. It's 621. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. In early March, a couple weeks after the war in Ukraine began, I met a woman named Daria Bietschasna. She had just become a refugee in Poland. And she told me that once she left Ukraine, she came back to the small rural border crossing of Krzyzczenko, where we met. She wanted to help others fleeing the war. We do what we can because uh, when we crossed the border, we were shocked and uh, don't understand what to do. A lot of people don't know, no Polish, no English. Uh, in our way, we can help them. Bietschasna is a high school economics teacher. And on that frigid day in the mountains, she told me she planned to continue teaching her students online. Well, two months later, she's kept her promise. Teaching economics to her pupils, who are now spread out all over the world. In Australia, in Britain, in the uh, USA, a lot of in Poland, Germany, France, uh, Belgium, uh, Luxembourg, uh, Georgia, Turkey. And the teacher is in Brittany, France, living in a coastal village by the sea. It takes me uh, three minutes to get to the ocean. She's with her aunt and cousins, who are 11 and 16. They study before French language, uh, and it's like opportunity for them uh, to study, to improve their French, and uh, to see another country, because they never go went anywhere from Dnipro, and it's their first time to be abroad. That's why we have so long travel by train from uh, Poland to uh, this uh, place. You're describing this like a great opportunity to visit a new country and uh, learn a new language. This is not the way people often talk about fleeing a war. All what we uh, get from life is uh, opportunity. We caught up over Zoom the other day. She was in France, I was in Poland, and Daria Bietschasna told me she has dreamed of seeing Brittany since she was a teenager. It was my dream from 16, really. I want to visit different French castles uh, from uh, Alexander Dumas' story. Yeah. And uh, now it's realized. As for me, it's terrible and beautiful at once. What was it like to see those French castles for the first time that you dreamed of since you were 16? Uh, now I can realize that they're beautiful, that French people take care about them. But uh, when I saw them, I understand that I miss Ukraine. In Ukraine, we have in Lviv, in uh, Kiev, a lot of beautiful castles. They are not better than French, as in my dreams. Huh. So it made you appreciate your home even more. Yes. Wow. You know, when I met you in Khrushchenko, I asked where you were going to go. And you answered the question, I hope to go home as soon as I can. And my uh, now my answer will be the same. Yeah. 
uh, as soon as I can, but uh, I really can't uh, be in country uh, in uh, dangerous. And uh, uh, now I also with my little cousins and uh, also um, to be nervous and uh, I'm uh, scared uh, each day and each moment in uh, my city. Because yeah. when I read news on my phone, I really become uh, hysteric. And that's um, Dnipro, right? Yes, it's Dnipro, but uh, uh, in Dnipro and our region are surrounded by Kherson, uh, uh, Zaporizhia, uh, Donetsk, yeah. Kharkiv, all these regions are in dangerous. Is it difficult for you to enjoy the beauty of this place you've always dreamed of going while you know that these terrible things are also happening back in your home? I work a lot with psychology uh, to understand uh, what beautiful uh, place and people and uh, use around me and that I have a lot of opportunities because uh, before that I was uh, almost upset and, and when I upset uh, I can't help my sisters and can't help myself. I can't help my parents and granny in Hebrew or help my friends. That's why I walk uh, by myself to get uh, normal emotions and normal life and be useful uh, for my country. Yeah. So your parents and your granny are still in yes. Dnipro? Yes. Are they safe? How are they doing? Uh, anybody in Ukraine, they are insane. Uh, but uh, they are adult people. It's their decision. And uh, my granny is too old to have a long travel. And now is the season of summer house and she wants to plant it and my cousins help her and uh, it uh, gives her uh, a little emotion and uh, to understand that she's also useful and uh, she can do what she likes. So she's planting a garden? She's planting vegetables? Not a lot of, but some tomatoes, some carrots, uh, some potatoes, please. Tell me about your students. You're still teaching them yes. remotely online? Yes. How are classes? How is that going in the middle of a war? <laughs> I have a lot of work now uh, because in Ukraine uh, make the school year shorter. That's why I have a lot of uh, job of tests of uh, taking uh, tasks. And are they able to focus or are they distracted because a war is happening? Now every student and uh, I hope each teacher understand that they should study and be better because we all should rebuild our Ukraine. And uh, in another way, it's uh, time not to be uh, concentrated on the, uh, only on war, destroy and anything, something as this. They have uh, some task what they should to do to be better, to be better for themselves, for their country, and for their parents. And 
Yeah, for me, it's a big motivation for me to get up in the morning and uh, doing my job uh, good as as well as I can and more. Yeah. Daria, I'm so glad to talk to you again and so glad that you're doing well and happy and getting to see French castles. And I hope you get to go home soon. Merci. Ukrainian economics teacher and refugee Daria Bietschasna speaking with me from a village in Brittany, France. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight in Miami, Celtics and Miami Heat play game one of the Eastern Conference Finals. Start time is 8.30. First two games of the series are in Miami. Boston's first home game will be Saturday. And tonight, Nathan Navaldi throws the first pitch at 7.10 in game two at Fenway Park between the Sox and the Houston Astros. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dedham Community Theater, celebrating independent film. Now showing the Duke and Petite Maman and reopened every day. Visit DedhamCommunityTheater.com. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting since 1938 with thousands of new and antique rugs, Boston, Salem, Framingham, and online at LandryAndArkari.com.